Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. And I am back. I'm here to talk about the recently concluded stand adaptation from CBS All Access. Now, I'm going to get into a lot of thoughts about the stand, um, why I didn't cover it on a week-to-week basis. But first, I just wanted to say hello to anyone that is tuning into the Stephen King cast. For the first time, Um, welcome to the Stephen King cast. What this show used to be was one man's musings on the works of Stephen King, in which I reviewed each of the works of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication and did a deep dive analysis um, into the characters, the themes, the conflicts, and um, how they they, um, all interconnected with each other and, and... and, and what that meant. So if you are tuning in for the first time and you want a, a deep dive um, that some listeners have referred to as almost like taking a, um, a college course on Stephen King, then please, by all means, head back to the beginning of the feed. Start from Carrie or pick and choose your, your favorite Stephen King books to get all of my thoughts and a deep analytical literary um, dive. Uh, into Stephen King. Uh, Since I had concluded that, it's kind of been a hodgepodge uh, here and there of just different topics. And what I have been doing for just about a year is going back to the works of Stephen King from the beginning again and reviewing the endings of the works of Stephen King to determine whether or not he deserves the criticism that he can't, quote unquote, end a story successfully. Um, I had been plugging along at that until about October, and then life got really busy, and I had to put that on a a hiatus. But I'm back today, not to pick up where I left off, which will lead us to Rose Matter, um, if I remember correctly. Um, Or was it Gerald's Game? I think it's Gerald's Game. That's what's up next, and then I'll get to Rose Matter. Uh, But what I'm going to do instead today, I'm going to talk about The Stand. Now, let me talk a little bit about The Stand before I analyze The Stand. Now, I have reviewed the first episode. You can get my my thoughts on the first episode of of The Stand. Um, And there was some question of whether or not I was going to review it on a weekly basis. After the second episode, I realized that I was not going to be doing that. And this is why. I found myself having more problems with what I was watching than I was with either enjoyment, satisfaction, or a belief that this was the best execution of what the adaptation could have been. And I did not want to spend nine weeks of my time uh, criticizing this thing for a couple of reasons. One... Um, I just don't have the time to spend, and uh, the time that I do spend, I don't, I don't want it to be spent on something negative. But also this, and I even debated doing this particular episode, um, because w- when it comes to what the podcast originally was and what it was designed to be, which was a look at the literature of Stephen King, I am trained in that. I can do that successfully. I can break apart a narrative. I can examine something, the execution, um, and and hold it up to the intent. Um, 
I can pull out the themes. I can see how well they interact with the characters and the setting and the conflict and what have you. I, I can do that well. And when you are examining the work of an author, in this case Stephen King, there is no budget that you have to worry about. It's really what it comes down to is the, the author's imagination, the ability to think through a problem, execute it, how well the revision process went. Um, and, and, and really, there are no external factors in being able to analyze the story. However, with a series like the one on CBS, there are so many factors that I am just not equipped to really talk about. How much of what we saw, how much of it was impacted by budget allocation? How much of any issues that we might have with uh, acting had to do with casting and whether or not the people that were cast were second, third, fourth choices? I don't know. Um, you know, there are just so many things that go into a large production like this that uh, the, the only reason why a production occurs is because of compromise. And what we see is not the result of one person making decisions, but hundreds of people making decisions. And I am not informed as to what the process is, whose role is what. I don't have an understanding. I don't have a background. So I can talk about how the story looks as it plays out, but that story itself is impacted by series of decisions made by people um, all working together to try their best to make this happen. And because so many people worked on this, I didn't feel right um, judging this because I am not a critic, so to speak. Um, and I certainly don't have film criticism, uh, the, the accolades to, to be able to, or credentials to be able to successfully and um, with authority be able to critique this. Now, I, I say this having, you know, reviewed Stephen King media outside of books. I've reviewed television adaptations. I have reviewed movies, and um, I have. But again, I, I realize that if I'm ragging on something or if I have a problem with something, this is an instance where I just I don't have the deep understanding or knowledge to do it as well as I can with a novel. And for some people that were enjoying it, I didn't want to um, take that away from anyone. And I, uh, I know that you know Josh Boone, for instance, is a big Stephen King fan, and I can't imagine he went out of his way to make something um, that was less than. So it's a long way of saying I didn't want to spend the time week in and week out criticizing something. However, uh, now that it has settled, I've been able to really take it all in. I do have some thoughts. I'm going to share my thoughts. But with that caveat that I'm coming to this from the perspective of someone whose knowledge on the production business is incredibly limited but I will talk about what we saw, what we saw, what we received for myself and for the listener emails that I will share. Um, it, it is not, I don't believe it's the best execution of what the stand could be. So 
I'm going to get into all my thoughts, but first, let me read some of those listener emails um, so that it's not just me. Okay, so Ian uh, writes, uh, and, and Ian actually had a, um, a running series of, or a series of running emails uh, as he made his way through the stand. So I'm just going to be reading all of them. It cracked me up to keep checking in with him to see what his thoughts were. So the best thing about the new version is the snot. So this is definitely from the beginning. The rest is like preaching to the converted with the new scripture. Most of the constituent parts of the show are at least okay, but they are handling the material itself, the basic telling of the tale. Um, it's catastrophic. It's all over the place. I don't need to see all the faces of Harold in one episode. The average viewer will have forgotten who he is by the time it becomes important again. Feel like it gave Stu and Franny sides of the triangle of the elbow. It just needs to be a more organic approach. Let it build, not throw it all at us once in the wrong order. My comment on the first scene in the church was like, what is this, episode 10? Plus, as you say, The Stand is all about the illness. The original TV show delivered the illness remarkably well for no money, but struggled with the frankly sanctimonious Boulder crowd. Without the illness, what does this version have? The cult-like flavor of the free zone you can take in the book because of the depth on the screen both times, Vegas looks like the better option. Dressing Mother Abigail up like a messiah doesn't help. Larry, this is Nick Andros. Really? Who is he? My son even wondered who Mother Abigail was at episode two, and that must really say something about the storytelling. This approach is horribly misjudged. Personally, I'm with you. I don't think the timing could be more perfect for the stand. Let's face it, Contagion, Contagion is now ten times the movie it was when it first came out, having lived through a version of it. It's a real missed opportunity so far to deliver something people could really respond to, but I'm still watching. The rest of my family like it. I hate it. So far. From Ian who then wrote back and said, at the risk of sounding like a grumpy old man complaining that things these days aren't as good as they used to be, this version of The Stand isn't as good as the old one. Just finished episode five, so that's five hours in. The old one was six hours long and was wrapping up by this stage and had more of the book in it. Less time, less money, but still more stand. How do you figure that? I don't know what extra I'm getting for all of the extra in this. Where's Trash Can Man? Bit late to introduce him in six, if that's the plan. I'll get to the Trash Can Man, don't worry. That was me interjecting. What I'm saying is, there was enough of everybody in the last one. For the new version's extra running time, I'm not getting any more Nadine than I did last time. I'm getting less of everybody else, but watching it for longer. Glenn is hardly in it. All of them are just taking charge, and we don't really know any of them. My son asked me at episode 5, why does Harold hate Stu so much? He's 17. He's not stupid. He just isn't on the screen. The material is being poorly handled. Credit where credit is due. A lot of it is really well done. I'm sorry, a lot if it is really well done. It's just in the wrong order. Scenes played well, but they're also jumbled up that if you haven't read the book, you'll probably turn it off. The guy playing Tom Cullen is great. The guy playing Lloyd is rubbish. Or what he's been given to do is rubbish. Miguel Ferrar had a much better part. Like you, I thought the marketing was all wrong. Didn't engage me at all. I was worried at the stage. I was worried at that stage. I don't like it. And I'm not expecting King himself to call it out either. I don't know. I'm still watching because we've made it a family thing, so I'm not dropping out, but it's getting harder to drag my son off the computer for it. Ian, grumpy old man from England. And he continues. The rest of my family are turning against the stand. <laughs> Nick is dead, but it doesn't really matter because the way the story is being told, Nick didn't matter anyway. I wish I hadn't said anything about Trash Can Man not being in it. 
Be careful what you wish for, I guess. And then he concludes. I actually thought the last episode was really well done. It was a satisfying conclusion to the uh, Vegas flag story, just taking the story elements and putting them up there on the screen. Job uh, done and well done. Great nuke. The build-up to it, however, remains questionable, in this bitter Englishman's opinion. Hoping you break your silence soon, because I am keen to hear your view. Ian. For writing in, and don't worry, you're going to get all my thoughts, or a lot of them anyway, um, by the end of this episode. All right, then we have Michael. I'm um, sorry. Then we have... Doo -doo -doo. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. He also wrote, um, P.S., the version of Baby Can You Dig Your Man, playing as the three walked into the hotel was another series highlight from the previous episode. Sounded pretty good to me. I agree. And then Michael writes, Greetings! It's been a while since I last wrote in, but I had some thoughts and questions about the show and the story. Bear in mind, I haven't read the book yet, and it's been a while since I've seen the original miniseries. I agree with your commentary on the first episode that the flashback techniques don't allow for us to go through the journey with these characters. The action scenes seem rushed. And it seems to me that the journey to Flag and Mother Abigail isn't given the exploration and exposition that it deserves. We haven't been given a reason why these characters are drawn to the two mentors or why it is important that they find them. When the spies are sent to New Vegas, the next episode shows them already there and no journey to go through with these characters. I also do not see why Flag is a threat. The show hasn't really established what his goals or intentions are, in my opinion. What do you think? I'll get to it. It just seems his new series isn't given the story the weight and time that it deserves to and which to be told, and a lot of things are being rushed or glossed over. I'd really like to hear what you think. Thanks again for the podcast. I recently finished season two of Castle Rock, and I loved it. Happy New Year. Michael. Michael, thank you for writing in. Matt writes, Dear constant reader, and hello from Germany. First of all, thank you for all of your good work. I've discovered your podcast some years ago, and I'm a constant listener ever since. I usually download the episodes to my phone and listen to them in my car. I find them very insightful and entertaining. Most of the times I agree with you. Sometimes I don't, but that's what it's all about, isn't it? Most importantly, you come across as nice and a decent guy, someone I can imagine having a beer or two at a bar and discussing all things Stephen King. Um, thank you, Matt. That's really, thank you. Thank you very much. I must have been 12 or 13 years old when I read my first King novel. I'd like to say it was it, but I'm not 100% sure. I'm sure, though, that I didn't buy that book. The public library in my hometown, a former mining town, um, had a service called a book bus, a bus with a selection of library books that happened to stop every Tuesday in a street where I lived. I think King would like that. And I know that Joe Hill, his son, would, as he wrote a uh, short story in his recent collection um, about this concept. Um, and he continues, I fell in love with King instantly, and although especially my mother was very skeptical of him, she thought he was trash literature, I became a fan, eagerly waiting for that bus to come with fresh books for me to devour. Since then, I'm 46 now. I read many other authors. I studied literature. I'm a journalist now, but I keep coming back to him, and I have read nearly every book he has written. I started with the German translations of his books, but at some points I switched the originals, as the German versions sometimes tend to be translated in a hurry, and often it shows. My favorite book is probably The Stand, but in recent years, 1122-63 came close. Speaking of The Stand, I just finished the third episode of the new version and I'm still not sure what to think about it. As you said, some parts are okay, some are not. I think the wait for the last episode to come to a final conclusion. I think that there's something missing. Like you, don't, like you, I don't like the flashback concepts. And I also think it was a poor decision to place the protagonist's journey across America in the fall instead of the summer. 
as weird as it may sound, but for me, The Stand is a summer read. The new uh, show also lacks the magnitude of the book. Never does it once get the large extent of the catastrophe that has taken place, and that's probably the fault of the budget. But all nagging aside, in episode one, I spotted a really clever shout-out when Harold was in his room in a gunkwit. You can see a poster on the... Sorry, Ogunquit. Is that how you pronounce it? They pronounce it strangely in the show. Ogunquit. That's how you pronounce it. You can see a poster on the wall showing the drawing of a screaming man with his mouth wide open. That, of course, is the cover for an album by the English band called King Crimson, and the title of this album, In the Court of the Crimson King. Find that pretty cool. Sorry for rambling. That mail got longer than planned. I look forward to your next episode. Keep up the good work. May you have long days and pleasant nights. Best regards, Matt. Matt, thank you so much for writing in. And that is a good Easter egg. I wouldn't have gotten that one on my own. Um, and then we have Quinn who writes, Dear Mr. Stephen King cast, I know that I said I wouldn't write in anymore to complain about things, but I feel as this is a bit different because it also shapes the way people view the book's ending. As you know, the book's ending is criticized as being a deus uh, ex machina because of the hand of God description. However, I never saw it as God himself setting off the nuke. I saw it more of a symbol that good was purifying evil. But what really set off the nuke was Flagg's own power conspiring against him. He wants to be powerful by obtaining a nuke, holding prisoners in front of the crowd and using his magic to show that he's beyond human. But these displays of power backfire. His false bravado in the face of the white was what set off the nuke when his magic electricity blew it up. All of our characters had to do was make their stand against evil and everything else fell into place. You could say that this was the will of God all along, but it was also Flagg's own personality coming back to bite him, which is how, quote-unquote, God's will, or more accurately, life, works in the first place. God was hands-off in the novel, but the hand of God at the end showed that he was really there the whole time, symbolically. The power of the white in our characters and the destructive power of Flag ending his own destruction. Which brings me to my point. Why did they have a lightning ball come down from the sky and zap everyone in the show? I personally love the ending of the book for all of these reasons and for the twist of Stu's breaking his leg and Stephen King saying something along the lines of they never saw him again. But then it turns out that Stu survives instead of them and being reunited with Tom Cullen and Kojak. Ah, it all fell into place perfectly. Anyway, I'm looking forward to your review of the show. Had its ups and its downs, but boy, did they mess up that climax. Can't wait to hear your compliments and gripes along the way. And I'm excited for Stephen King's episode next week where he basically got to write Fran and... The Fran and the Well story he always wanted to write. Long days and pleasant nights, Quinn. Quinn, um, I fully agree with your thoughts on the the, the hand of God. I, I mean, that... You said that better than I could have, um, but that that is the, that's the issue that I have. And I'll let me let me hold on. Let me hold off on my thoughts. Um, but yes, I I fully agree with you there. Then we have Sarah who writes, "Hi, I did put in similar comments onto your Facebook page, but I thought that you might like the comments separately uh, from here in the UK. If you take it as a stand alone series, see what I did there? It was perfectly watchable, and there were some really interesting touches. I thought Harold, Nadine, Larry Glenn, and particularly Tom Cullen were really well cast and a joy to watch. The way Tom's character was updated from a completely innocent man-child to an adult with a learning difficulty was really great. Plus, his Dolly t-shirt was fantastic. My main issues were the utter lack of chemistry between Stu and Franny. In fact, Franny in general, I found the actress really grating and lacking in relatability. 
the awful cartoonish portrayal of the trash can man, which bordered on offensive in places and reminded me of Trump's impression of those with physical disabilities and the butchering of Tom's whole story. Having spoken to Brad William Henke online, he said that they'd filmed Tom's rescue of Stu in a lot of detail, but inexplicably chose not to show it. Also, the portrayal of Lloyd was awful. As a viewer, I just couldn't understand why Flag would choose him as his right-hand man when there was a um, when he was just a coward that spent all of his time peacocking. I'm revisiting the 1990s miniseries this weekend to compare it, but I seem to remember it being better. Really enjoy the podcast, by the way, Sarah. Thank you, Sarah, for writing in. Uh, then we have Joey, who or Joe, who writes, "Hey, Stephen King cast, thanks for inviting us, constant readers, to write in." I've been looking forward to hearing your thoughts on the show and figured that I would share a few comments of my own. For an adaptation that spent years in development hell and might have been a, might have been a movie trilogy, I have mixed feelings about how this show ultimately turned out. The Stand is easily one of my favorite of Psy King, and from the diverse characters to the sprawling epic nature of the story and reinforcing King's motif of how good will triumph over evil when people pull together. In many respects, I think the show succeeded in bringing some of it to life, for better or worse, all the characters were how I pictured them. Harold and Glenn really stood out to me, and I'll definitely take Skarsgård over McConaughey as flag. The cinematography was also quite stunning in many instances. So many characters' backstories were left out, though, and many sequences were simply cut. One that really sticks out to me was the lack of No Great Loss, where we get brief glimpses into many POVs that display the horrors of Captain Trips. I'm sure your analysis will dive deeper into what worked and what didn't, but as we continue to battle a pandemic ourselves, this felt like a timely release and was for the first force for the most part was enjoyable. Maybe not the adaptation we deserved, but the one that we needed right now. Wishing you long days and pleasant nights, Joe. Thank you, Joe. And then Jennifer writes, I want to start off by congratulating you all on a phen- um, gradu- congratulating you on a phenomenal podcast. I look forward to the new episodes each week. Uh, Now the question at hand. I did stream The Stand over the weekend, and I have thoughts. Lots of thoughts. I started by making notes on each episode, but I won't go into all of that here. What I will say, for the most part, the casting was absolutely amazing. Owen Teague is Harold. I can't just, I can't, I just can't say enough good things about that. It's been a while since I read the book, so maybe I'm just influenced by the original miniseries, but I do feel like several of the cast members, Nadine, Glenn, Trash Can Man, were much younger than I ever envisioned them. And Ezra Miller as a trash can man? Eh, way over the top. As for the story, I just think the stand is way too involved to be covered in 8.5 hours. This version was a good overview, but never got in-depth enough. Uh, there was actually very little reason to even cast Nick Andros in this version, just he didn't play a big part. The stand could very easily be adapted into a full series with several seasons to get into the characters and build the suspense and terror that you feel when you read the book. I actually did like the non-literary storytelling used here. I wasn't sure when I first read about it, but it did fit well. Again, there was too much story to tell in short time. Alexander Skarsgård was great. Those Skarsgård boys should always be in Stephen King works, but the level of underlying menace just wasn't felt. All in all, a passable version of the story, but not as good as I wanted. Thank you for listening, Jennifer. Jennifer, thank you for writing in, and everybody, thank you for writing in. Um, and if you have thoughts and you're home and you're listening and you want to write into Stephen King cast at yahoo.com, please do so. I love getting listener email. Okay. With all of that said, here are my thoughts on the CBS all access adaptation of the stand. So guys, I don't know if I'm going to be able to 
speak better about the stand than the the listeners who wrote in did. Um, but honestly, with what everyone wrote and I just read, that's that sums up my thoughts really. Um, but just just to kind of wrap it all up. I'll give some big thought. You know, it, it was just rushed. You know, like like I said in my review of the the first episode, a major concern that I had was the the sequencing of the narrative, the fact that it was a nonlinear form of storytelling, uh, really ruined the experience, um, and and to not know what was going on, as evidenced from the some of the listeners that that were were, were uh, writing in uh it, you know it, it really shows just how misguided that idea was um you know i i i'm not sure if i said this in in my review of the first episode but so much of the story is getting to know the characters through action and through the empathy of being with them as they make their way as the story unfolds by taking away what I just said as the story unfolds you take away the potency of the characters and the viewers relationship with those characters so it's one thing to flash back to New York City as Larry struggles with the end of the world. It's another thing, and it's a more powerful thing, to experience it along with him and not know what's going to happen next. And that's the big fear of this novel and our society. Think about, I'm recording this, um, actually I've been recording this over a, period of a couple days but we're, we're approaching the one year anniversary of of uh quarantine starting because of the uh covid pandemic of uh that that began in in the, the quarantine starting in march of 2020 um and if you look back one year ago there was a lot of fear and that fear came from the unknown and the fear of what would happen to ourselves if we contracted COVID, to our loved ones who might be a little bit older or have underlying health issues, what would happen to our economy, what would happen to the society. You know, and then there was so much unknown information, you know, how, how, easily contracted was it did we have to wipe everything down um you know i mean since then we've learned a lot about how to handle this this virus better than we did one year ago but again so much of it was the unknown and that is a part of the strength of the storytelling of the stand is once captain trips hits there's the unknown factor as to what is going to happen to these characters the characters themselves are afraid of what's going to happen next in this unknown world as it completely falls apart around them. It really is powerful to watch the complete dismantling of society as we know it. 
Um, and then having our characters have every modern comfort stripped away and having them embark upon a journey of both an internal and an external journey. Part of the, 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 the journey is, yes, it's an external journey that they have to take across this new landscape to achieve, to, you know, achieve their destination. Um, but the other one is that, that inward journey, especially Larry. Um, so to take that all away and to have it just be an afterthought, it's just a re, it's, it's, it, I, I, that's like breaking someone's knees at, at the, the start of the, um, the starter's pistol. And there's just it takes away all momentum it takes away all strength in the story it's it's it, you know I, I went back and i listened a little bit to the um my review of the mick garris abc miniseries and i'll talk a little bit about that later but one one thing that i said is i i hope that the the i was talking about the movie at the time this is when i recorded that the adaptation was going to be a warner brothers movie um you know, I, I talked about how I wanted them to make a bold decision. And looking back on it, that's what they did here. But I, I think that what I had meant was a bold decision that is true to what the story is. And this is miscalculated how important the linear storytelling was to the overall story. And then, you know, I, I'm not the first person to say that the stronger episodes are in the, the back half once they stop doing that flashback sequencing. And after we, I don't even want to say have gotten to know the characters because I don't think we ever really get to know the characters. But for those of us that know the story, it just felt more recognizable to what the stand was. So obviously, so that that's the first thing that I have to say. Um, you know, and it just by organizing it this way, it's just so weird that we never really get to know these characters. So, for instance, it, by episode four, you know, when we've barely gotten to know the, the the characters, and it's it's the time when we're sending them the the spies to Vegas. We just, we don't know the threat of Vegas. We don't know what it means. We don't have a sense of this world. Um, you know, at one point, Glenn's talking about the spies being a direct violation of Mother Abigail. We don't really know who Mother Abigail is at this point. We haven't spent time getting to know her. You know, I mean, there's one episode where we see what happens to the judge. I mean, I don't think that we've met that character. So, again, it, it's just so strange. It's just so so strange it was such a strange experience now here here's one big issue that i have and that's the simplicity of vegas new vegas as they call it now disclaimer here i, I know that there's people who don't want politics brought into it but the fact of the matter is that all art in some way is influenced by uh the world in which we live and the world in which we live is shaped primarily by two massive influences, and that's politics and religion. Those are the two fundamental bricks that we build our lives on, whether we want to or not, and whether we care about politics or believe in any religion. 
um, the lives that we're born into, the decisions that we make on our behalf, the, the, these are all influenced by laws that are passed by those that are elected, um, and the art and 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 those that are are elected, sh you know, shape the society that they are born into, and it's cyclical in nature, which is very fitting for the stand, and it, it's all fed by. Um, by politics and religion. So the, the art that is produced is an acknowledgement um, or a product or a commentary on the world in which the artist exists. And the artist exists in a political world that is shaped by politics. Therefore, the art has every right to comment on the world of the artist. And Stephen King, the artist, is very political. So sorry, I know that there are some people that just don't want politics brought into it, but it's just... To me, that's a misunderstanding of what the art is. And so anyway, I got to talk about Vegas, um, and it's going to be political. So what we see in this version is good people go to Boulder and bad people go to Vegas to do bad guy things. And what was chilling about Vegas in the book was the puritanical control that Flag had over his people. There were no drugs. There was no hard liquor. Um, and there were shades of gray there. Here, everyone is just cartoonishly evil. This couldn't be any further um, from what needs to be explored in fiction. The fact that this show came out during a pandemic after an election that demonstrated the reality of the two Americas that we find ourselves living in somehow managed to write the pandemic out of the story and present warring ideologies as simplistic as capital G good and capital E evil shows a woeful misunderstanding of the potency of the text itself. Now, I understand that Josh Boone and company couldn't have predicted COVID. But you don't have to predict it. King didn't write it because he knew that we would be exploring the realities of plague life one day. But because we are human, there is always a possibility. And hence the point of the cycle imagery and the themes of the novel. These are the things that are built into human nature, and that's why it works well. Similarly, the rise of fascism and the worst instincts of humanity in our neighbors next door is explored within the character's not necessarily of Vegas, but of Colorado. And that's the chilling part. That's what's scary. That's the social commentary. Watching characters be mean to Tom Cullen, watching a bunch of people have sex on the floor, watching people act like unsupervised children on a sugar high sleepover is not a nuanced or interesting examination of a society. It's low-hanging fruit. Of course there would be debauchery. Yeah, there would be hedonism. Yes, there would be gross indulgence, of course, but the portrayal as we saw it here was childish and misguided. Basically, what it presented it was like this. Do you like sex? Go to Vegas. Do you like drugs? Go to Vegas. Are you gay? Go to Vegas. Those are the implications of the visuals as they were presented to us. Now, in the wake of the assault on the Capitol in real life, it's easy to draw parallels between the type of person that would dress up like a bear Viking with face paint to go invade the United States Capitol and the type of person who would be found in Flags Vegas. So there's some sad truth to what we see. But those people are not the majority. And these people are not a part of the more complicated realities of society and the politics that King explored in The Stand when he wrote it. Yes, I will say this, however. In The Dark Tower... He completely roasted this type of person 
as focusing on the inner lives of the low men. But that was a wonderful subversion of the expectations as to what we normally get from the army of the big bad. There was a truth presenting the characters in Las Vegas as low men and women, and that's what we see. But in doing so, Boone and company stripped the meatier and more interesting components of the text. So, on one hand, when you watch Lloyd, watch him as a low man, and it works. However, on the other hand, I would argue that it's not the right commentary for the right story. I think that we're missing the point as to what draws people where, and by making it cartoonishly evil, we're doing a disservice here. And by not exploring like the, the people... Um, the, the drunk driving that occurs in uh, in Colorado and the, the more kind of chaos that's occurring in Colorado. Chaos isn't the right word, but it's messier because they're going for democracy. Um, and the fact that, that, that fascism is hinted that it starts to rise um, from the sheriff that's taking a little bit too much control and stoking fear in Colorado. That, that to me... That is important, and having things be so cold and and abstinent at and, and a little puritanical and dangerous and fundamental. There's the fundamentalism of of flag society, and it isn't this hedonistic, debaucherous, party central city as you would expect it to be. There's a cold, calculating control behind it. Um, that, that strips people of their enjoyment. I think there's something to be said there. And I think that there's something that, that was missed out there. Now let's talk about the casting. Um, I had issues with the casting um, and whatever the hell Ezra Miller was doing. Okay, well, let's just talk about Ezra Miller. We have to. Um, from the, the, the Mad Max outfit to the mewling noises to that... There was a particular arm gesture that he was making that's usually reserved for bullies imitating someone with a disability. This performance was a lot to take in. Um, and just not good. Sorry to be so simple about it, but it was just awful. But in general, the, the, the casting, I mean, I just felt like there was a lot of wasted potential. Like Greg Kinnear um, and, and Jovan Adepo, is that... How do you pronounce uh, the, the, the actor who played Larry? I mean, they both showed potential with these characters, but I just don't feel like based on what the way that it was structured, there wasn't much that they had to do. So, for instance, the goodbye between Stu and Glenn was really well done. It, it, it was good. It works and it was quiet and it's sad and it speaks to a relationship that doesn't exist on screen. Similarly, when, when, when Stu is is teeing off and, and grandstanding in the, the courtroom scene, I think he's doing good work. I think Greg Kinnear's doing good work, but it it's just he wasn't given a lot to do, and the character wasn't given time to grow. So there, there was good casting, but they never really had time to really embody their characters. Even Skarsgård, you know, and I like Skarsgård. But he made a conscious decision to be low energy. You know, he, he said that, th this is what he wrote in an interview with EW. This is what he said. He said, 
For Skarsgård, going big with the role would have been easy, considering just how powerful King's character is, so he went the opposite direction. And he says, Flag's such a formidable opponent, I decided to focus on, her vul on his vulnerability. He needs adulation and accolades from his sycophants, and that fuels his ego. That's interesting because he shouldn't care about tiny humans at all, but still craves their devotion. It was a, de a decision that surprised and impressed the producers. He's able to be so still and quiet, which was a brilliant choice and not what any of us expected. But to me, it's it's almost flat, you know? Um, and I like him, and he can be menacing, and I'm a big fan of his. And I was pretty excited about the, the casting when he was first cast because I know he can be charismatic and captivating and dangerous. But we don't get as much of that we don't get someone that is tittering we don't see this chaos embodiment this and you know he is chaos he is chaos personified we don't get that um you know think of what i always liked about flag i always saw it like the joker the joker is most dangerous when he stops laughing and then you realize that there's this absence of this madness and this maddening laugh, right? And think about that, that manic energy for a second when he said, Bobby Terry, you screwed it up, which was nice that he, you know, they, they, they got it in there. But that kind of manic energy where he's just, this like da Daffy Duck, you know, when he's like, hoo 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 hoo, like, that is Randall Flagg, but it, it's not present here. Now, with that, all that said, I like Alexander Skarsgård. I think he did an interesting take on Flagg. I just don't think it captured this really quiet, somber version that he gave us. I, I, I just don't agree with it. All right, uh, let me let me switch gears and talk about um, some things that I, I did like. Okay, so you know everything that I said about. Skarsgård, um, I still, I don't like the decisions that he made. I like the casting. I like the look. Um, and I like little things, you know. Um, I, I loved him drinking white Russians or straight up milk. I don't know what it was. I loved his reaction when Dana died, the way he just kind of flopped his arms. Um, so th there were moments that, that, uh, that really cracked me up. So it, even though I didn't agree with the, the decision to downplay the mania, um, you know, I, I do have to give credit that it was a decision and he went for something. Um, but some of the stuff he did, I, 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 I definitely enjoyed. Um, episode seven, I felt huge closest to the book because it allowed us to, to really stick with the characters. Uh, it took it slow. Um, and it let us join the characters on their journey, uh, which is also kind of a backhanded, backhanded compliment because it also underscored what was missing uh, from this adaptation entirely. Um, you know, the, as I stated already, both in this review and the last review, that the journey is so important. And, and to be able to see the, the, the grandeur of this journey um, and, and the way in which Vincenzo Natali, uh, who also directed the adaptation of In the Tall Grass, the way in which he was able to capture the the drama and the conversations and the reflections and the the philosophizing of the characters set against the landscape of America 
that to me is more than anything else. That is the stand. And that was what was missing from this adaptation, which occurred for all of the characters as they made their way across this new landscape in the wake of Captain Trips. So to see it, you know, at the end, um, when these four characters were making their way, it showed us what the stand is supposed to be and for this, this brief moment, what it could have been. Episode 8, uh, which was also directed by uh, Natalie. Um, I, I stated a little bit before about, uh, about Glenn and Greg Kinnear, um, but this is the episode that allowed some time for, for Glenn to ruminate on the differences between perceived strength as an overcompensation for fundamental weakness, and that is the type of conversation and exploration that had been missing from the show. And it was a good showcase for, for Greg Kinnear, um, who, who's Glenn, you know, managed to throw in a, a pretty funny uh, Game of Thrones reference. I, I really like that. I actually like lol at that moment. Um, you know, I mean, but, but going back to the conversation around what is weak, what is strength, what is true strength, um, what is weakness masquerading as strength, th that is a great condemnation of, of, of Trumpism, really, and this belief that you have to be mean and you have to showboat and you have to say quote-unquote strong things to be a strong leader um, without the understanding that um, compromise and the ability to work with others and having empathy um, and not having to peacock all the time and being comfortable with yourself. These are, these are uh, the real qualities of strength. Um, so I, I, I really liked the condemnation of the hollowness of the, the, the type of leadership um, that we have seen before. Um, and one thing that I liked, you know, I, I, I criticized Vegas and the portrayal of what Vegas was. However, I really liked being able to see Las Vegas. Um, like I said, I didn't like the content of what was brought um, and, and the, 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 the commentary of what uh, Vegas was, being able to see it, being able to see Vegas, especially when we're all still in quarantine. I think that it was something that was missing from the original series, and that was just due to budget constraints, I'm sure, at the time. Um, you know, I, I wish that so much of it wasn't stuck inside that one Vegas hotel, but the exterior shots of the city and the strip and the constant video footage of Flag, it was great. You know, the idea of Flag needing to be plastered everywhere speaks to him having to make up for his insecurities, which goes back to the, the fear-mongering versus true leadership. So I really like being able to see Vegas. Um, all right, now let's talk about the destruction of Vegas. I loved that moment where the clouds start to surround the hotel and the realization that it was all about to come down. You know, Flag having to come face to face with true power, you know, that, that, that real old school divine Old Testament lightning wrath of God power makes this little levitation trick seem so small. That's a nice contrast. So I liked the idea of that and I liked the way, like I said, the clouds started to curl around like the hand of God. Um, however, the, the lightning bolt attack was ridiculous. Um, 
again, one of the, the listeners spoke to the hubris of flag and how the hand of God could be seen in the book as a metaphor for flag's hubris. And in the end, it wasn't so much a deus ex machina. It was flag all along who brought himself down. He was the one that wanted the atomic bomb and it was trash can man who brought it back. It was flag who wanted to, to show his strengths um, so he sent out his little electric ball, um, and these two things collided and brought down his own, brought, brought himself down. So I like that. This, watching this magic ball of energy zap everyone, that was, it was just too much. And it was, you know, if this power existed, why did it wait until now? You know, if you strip the, the, the metaphor away from it, and you're just looking at it as, as the text. Then, if if God was is is this powerful all the time, and can do this, why did why did God wait until now? Um, you know, I I know that you can say because God wanted to see what happened if humanity would make the stand, and they did, and God swept in and, and cleaned it up for them but um i don't know i like i said i like the simplicity of things and i thought the the lightning bolt destruction was cartoonish you know so by the end there's some things that are fine um but that by that point i i just really stopped caring i i know that there's a lot of easter eggs you know the stephen king cameo at hemingford home the crimson king symbol the shining carpet um you know i i get it it's all there but um I just, it just came over, it, it, just nothing seemed to matter really. You know, in general, I, I can't remember really experiencing something like this, the, the exact pacing of this show. It's so weird. I can't quite put my finger on it. It is simultaneously too quick and too long. It plods along from start to finish, in the same gear, yet the characters in the plot seem on fast forward. It's really strange. It's truly bizarre. I have never experienced something with this particular blend of pacing, um, and I hope to never again. You know, I, I think the legacy of this show will be one that is... One, one part of the legacy will be that it's it's not really talked about. And I think that when it is talked about, it's going to be talked about as the show that came out in the middle of a pandemic that didn't feature a pandemic. I think it's going to be remembered as this massive whiff of an opportunity um, and a complete misfire in that regard. I mean, this is the book of a pandemic. The first third of the book goes into detail about the destructive force of a pandemic, and we were forced to live in a pandemic. I remember sitting down and recording my thoughts on the ending of The Stand in March of 2020, unsure of whether or not I should because we were just facing the beginning stages 
of COVID-19, and I wasn't sure if it was crass for me to talk about it, and I remember the uncertainty and the strangeness of that time. So for me to be thinking about that, and then for this show to come out and completely whiff on that, and I get it, I get it. When they were filming it, COVID-19 wasn't a thing. The coronavirus hadn't brought the world to its knees. I get it, I get it. But the timing couldn't have been worse to underscore the bad decision that was made in downplaying the pandemic and Captain Trips. So I think I owe a massive apology to Mick Garris. I really do. I really do. And this was one of the reasons why I was kind of hesitant about talking about this adaptation at all. And like I said earlier about um, so many factors going into um, a television production that you know we are just not aware of um, and how easy it is, easy it is for us to criticize. Um, but like I said, I listened to a little bit of my review of the ABC miniseries from the 90s. And I remember, I, I didn't listen to, to all of it, but I remember being snarky about it. And I remember being more critical about it than I should, which to me is emotionally dishonest to how I truly felt about that miniseries back in the day. I wore out the tape of that VHS, having taped it when it was on. And I watched it again and again and again. And I loved it. And I felt that it was true to what the book was. And I thought that it was a good job. And it's only when I got older that I look back on it and you know, found more criticisms with it. And I think that I dismissed it. And if I did, it's not fair. It's not fair to the understanding of what went into the production in the 90s and what could be done and what couldn't be done. And to know that Mick Garris and company captured the spirit and the characters and the grandeur and the structure of the book so faithfully and so powerfully with less resources, I imagine, than, than today. And to have this adaptation miss, miss the mark so much, I, I really, really owe Mick Garris an apology if I said anything too snarky um, because this really made me remember the things that I loved from an emotional standpoint about that original miniseries. Um, yeah, it really felt like the stand. It felt like the stand and this does not feel like the stand. So Mick Garris, if you're listening, um, I loved your adaptation. I loved it as a kid and I would like to revisit it now and I can't imagine the hard work that went into it. Um, and I, I, I don't necessarily want to, you know, bring something down to raise something else up, but I think that it should be noted that, that I think that we need to re-examine the ABC version, um, especially in, in the wake of of this, of uh, the, the CBS one. Now, um, I, I forgot to talk about the, the final episode. I didn't even like the final episode. Um, 
you know, on one hand, it, it was nice to reframe it with Franny. And I, sh I should say that there was a lot of talk about this final episode being the coda and King was going to write it. And, you know, it was something that he'd been thinking about for years. And, you know, so I was excited. Um, but to me, it, it didn't give us anything that wasn't already present in the in the final pages of the book. Um, and by focusing on Franny, the character of Franny, based on the decisions, based on the choices that they made, which I understand the choices, she doesn't feel like Franny from the book. There's a warmness within Franny from the book that is missing in this Franny who is um, by decision harder um, and she has to be harder because of the changes that they made to the Harold character um, by they made the Harold character more realistic and more more of an incel he has that entitlement the narcissism and and just a greasy soul um, and in, in in portraying him you know through a modern lens I, I like the fact that with Franny, they said this girl gets him. She understands who he is, and she's not going to waste any time, even at the end of the world, paying this black-hearted individual any mind. She does not owe it to him to be polite to him. She sees right through him, and she's the only one that sees right through him. And as a result, she's more cagey, she's more um, wily than she is in the book. So at the end here... It doesn't feel like Franny. Um, and there's this this disjointed um, nature to this, where the character that we're getting seems to be written by, you know, you know, is written by the author. And in my mind, if I say, okay, this this is this is Franny from the book, it, it makes sense, but it's it's being portrayed by the Franny from the television show, which to me is almost a completely different character. The things that are the same are the plot components. She's pregnant. She's stuck with Harold. She falls in love with Stu. That's kind of it. You know, everything else, like I said, she's cagey and she's wily and she's smart and she is on to Harold um, and she has to be harder. But, um, you know, I, I do like that in this conclusion, he touches upon the things that I had mentioned that I was missing from the entirety of the show, that the themes that made the book so haunting and meaty, the idea that the end of the world itself wasn't enough to stop human nature from falling back to their old ways that will ultimately lead to our destruction, he starts to touch upon these things here. You know, it was good to see Crycheck. It's always good to see Crycheck. Um, Tom's goodbye to Stu and Franny I thought was heartbreaking. Um, I'm sure everyone knows the turtle Easter egg, but look, the, the whole mechanism of this episode, Franny getting the water, it was tense. It certainly was, it had no business being that tense, but Jesus Christ, it was stupid. It was as stupid a plot point as I've ever seen. She didn't need the water. Why? Why was like, what was happening here? It was she needed to be in the well, and they needed to get her in the well, and they needed to get her in the well by acting stupid and giving us this stupid plot point. Um, it was it was pretty dumb. Um, and and then we get Mother Abigail. Okay, now 
The show purposefully stripped down Mother Abigail's powers and persona with a purposeful attempt to dismantle the magical Negro stereotype. Okay? And it was a very thoughtful decision on their part. Okay? I don't know if the execution was great. I don't know. I, I honestly don't know. I'm not saying, I'm not criticizing it. I don't know. Because we, I never felt like we got to know Mother Abigail as a person. I know, and I felt like in the book and in the original show, we did get to know her more person. Um, so they made the decision to strip away a lot of elements of Mother Abigail as to not perpetuate this, this magical Negro stereotype. But in the end of the show, you have a literal magical black character. So does that undo the work that was done? Is it a misunderstanding? On one hand, it is nice that God is portrayed as a black girl. I do like that image, but I just don't know if it entirely gels with the decisions that were made prior to uh, the conclusion. It seems at war with itself in that regard. Well, what do you want here? Um, I just, that stuck out to me. Um, it was pretty funny, though, that there was a child in the corn. I did like that. Um, you know, and then, um, you know, Randall Flagg switching over to Russell Faraday was fun. Uh, so keeping that. But uh, all in all, I, I, I don't know. I, uh, I just, I, I found it, there was a lot of talk about it. And I found it lacking, kind of like everything else with with the CBS All Access. So I don't know, guys. It uh, in all, it um, it didn't do it for me. I hope others enjoyed it. And like I said, I'm sure that there were a lot of factors that went into it that um, we are not aware of. Um, I, I completely I, I know that Josh Boone is someone that loves Stephen King. I can't imagine that he would go out of his way to to make a Stephen King adaptation, not feel like a Stephen King adaptation on purpose. Um, so I don't know. Um, I don't know exactly what happened, but it wasn't the adaptation for me. And I hope that um, Josh Boone goes on to, you know, continue. I would like for him to continue to make Stephen King adaptations. Um, and I, I hope that he um, is able to, to make one that feels true to his vision, um, but manages to, to capture the heart of the, the text. That's what I hope. Okay, um, so guys, that's all that I got. Um, thank you for being patient. Um, thank you for, for listening. Um, thank you for all of the, the listens over the years. Um, I've been doing this since, what, 2014? This is crazy. We're closer to the 10-year the anniversary at this point. Um, than we were than like the, the one year anniversary, which seems like just yesterday. Um, so if you're tuning in for the first time, you got a lot of episodes to listen to if you liked it. Um, and it, it's, it might be fun to go back and, and, and listen um, to, to where it started. Um, okay, guys, if you haven't left a review on iTunes, that would be dope. Uh, reviews really, really help me out. Um, it keeps the Stephen King cast towards the, the, the top of the iTunes search. And if you have any thoughts, write into stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. 
and I would love to get another episode out sooner rather than later, but I can't make any promises. So make sure that you, you keep the, um, keep, if you're subscribed, stay subscribed until this feed shows up and you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram where I, um, will keep you all updated on the, the next episode, which should be my thoughts on the, the conclusion to, um, Gerald's game. I think that's where we're at. Uh, so, um, like I said, leave a review, write into stephenkingcastle.com, and may you have long days and pleasant nights, and I'll see you here next time where M-O-O-N spells Stephen Kingcast. <laughs>